How many have been here for 10 years? Hello, my name is Edward Holetke, and I am a virtual a VMRV expert. Um, 10 years, I've been coming to VMworld since 2008. I started out with virtualization like everybody else, P2Ving my desktop to a VM and workstation two. Okay, did anybody else fall that way? Anyways, throughout my years, I've been studying the hypervisor. I want to know how this thing works, because if I understand how it works, I can better secure it. And I have a security mindset, so that's where all this comes from. I also like tinkering. I like knowing how things work, so I went and did that. So this is how data, flow, data flows through our hypervisors, VMware vSphere specifically, or ESX, and ESXi. And we have multiple different flows we need to worry about. The first one is our network flow. Typically, everything moves from, a, from the VM through a port group to a vSwitch through something called the DV filter, and then through the driver, and eventually I get to the hardware and the physical NIC, and I go out from there. At any one of these stages, I can intercept data. We need to think about that. Management has its own network. We call it VMK0. It's a port group with a, a VM kernel device. It flows pretty much the same way. No real major things here. If this was a, um, with no VLANs, it's, everything flows off the same and looks the same. Now, it has general security controls and where they are placed. Inside the port, the port groups themselves and actually the virtual switch, I can reject a bunch of things. Inside of the virtual switch are other controls like traffic shaping, network IO control, load-based teaming, and things that control the driver further down. If I'm going VLAN, VM to VM without changing a VLAN, or if they're on the same VLAN or the same port group, the traffic actually, as you notice, never leaves the hypervisor if the VM is on the same hypervisor. If it's on a different hypervisor, believe me, it leaves. If I have no VLAN or the same VLAN but a different port group, this is important. It still treats it as doing the same thing. I didn't give it a different VLAN. I'm using the same control. It actually never leaves the virtual switch either. Again, unless I'm going to a different hypervisor. If I'm going to a different VLAN or a different network with a different physical adapter, I'm actually going to be leaving the hypervisor. Everything's done at the physical switch. It goes right through the virtual switch layer and directly to the physical switch and it gets routed up there. If I have a no VLAN, save VLAN, different switch, different adapter, make and model, same thing happens, I have to go out. And make and model does mean different things. So if I have an Intel uh, NIC and I have a Cisco NIC, I'm definitely going to have to plumb those very differently. Why? Because they plumb to different virtual switches. Different virtual switches means I have to go somewhere else to route between them or put something between them to route between them like another VM. Again, I'm going in and out. Management does its own same thing. Now, here's the thing. Routing between things that are in the different hosts is only capable if the top of rack or further up is allowing you to do that route. 
So if I actually deny it in the virtual switch to route between two VLANs, I mean the physical switch to route between two VLANs, all the way up, you're never going to be able to do it. That's just the way it is. But if I have them routing to each other, then I can actually traverse these networks and I actually enter the physical world. Again, VM to VM, different VLAN, different vSwitch, same type of thing. I'm going in and out. I'm, I'm actually leaving the hypervisor at this point. This is considered east-west traffic. This is if I'm having different VLANs but different network connectivity. Like, for example, one of these networks on the left, let's say, is my VDI network, and I don't want my normal server network on the, on the right to talk to it. Well, they can talk only if the connectivity exists in the physical network. If that one of these was a DMZ, for example, a DMZ network, that physical connectivity probably won't exist. <laughs> I would hope it wouldn't. So you would, you would have a break there, and they would not be able to talk to each other. So that's that. That's networking. It's pretty straightforward. There's lots written on this. You can always find that. And there's been a great talk. Um, uh, Instead of blog post called the Great V Switch Debate, you can find it all in there. So let's talk about NSX. In here, everything kind of looks the same. No guest introspection. Everything's just standard traffic, and I haven't, and I'm blocking it. So NSX, I can actually tell the VDS to block all traffic. Actually, every VDS, I can do this. I can say block all traffic on a on that VDS. It'll go to the VDS and just die. Won't go any further. I can do that. That's built into a virtual distributed switch today. It's not built into a virtual, uh, uh, the VSS, the standard virtual switch. But if I want guest introspection, which is built into NSX, and actually it's, it's part of VMware tools. It's installed as, anytime you install VMware tools, the guest introspection API and libraries are in, and agents are installed automatically. So what happens is the VM does something different. It goes and says, okay, I'm going to go to VMCI, which is going to the hypervisor kernel, and then I'm going to go to the guest introspection driver, and that driver is going to say, oh, I got to go to this local vSwitch that NSX created for me to go to this local port group to get to the per service, the per host service VM that does the introspection. Notice it's actually from the VM, not traversing a network that's traversing VMCI, which is an internal construct. This is how a lot of the antivirus tools get plugged into NSX. This is actually EPSec version two. There was EPSec version one, Endpoint Security version one did it slightly differently, but this is what we're working on now. Now we get to NetX. Does anybody know what NetX is? NetX is basically the next generation of security from VMware built into NSX. It's for NSX V only at the moment, but allows you to actually tie together, kind of like network function virtualization, a bunch of controls that are drivers and or service VMs that you can steer traffic through. So in this case, I got two virtual security appliances. I'm actually going into the DV filter DV filter has the NetX slots, it fills in the slot, sends data to an appliance, says, oh, you do that. Oh, next slot, go to the next appliance. Any one of these appliances could say, don't deliver that traffic, or modify the traffic, or do anything I want to it. And then it'll pass to the next one, and the next one. And, and there's only a limited number of slots, so there's only a limited number of things I can do here. 
again, if it's allowed, then the traffic would be allowed out and follow the same path of the network that we were talking about. So that's effectively the basics of the NSX security features. When it comes to the logical routers and everything like that, it's really just your DVS with a few other things thrown in and VMs to link things together. It's the best way to look at it. Virtual disk caching. This is actually really interesting. How many caches do you expect to be in your disk cache all the way down, the, all the way down to your hardware? How many caches exist naturally? Two, three, ten, one, none? So generally the normal usage is the VM goes to a local disk cache. One way, there's always a cache on there. Another path would be going to the cache at the remote disk. Every disk has a cache in it. So we've got to think about that. All data at the cached within an array or within inside of the hypervisor hardware is actually always cached. I can cache in the array at the disk, but I also cache at the array itself. All arrays have caching, believe me. So I got multiple paths here. Anything above that is uncached. Now, I can actually cache in the HBA. All host bus adapters, all SCSI devices have caches built into them for the exact same reason. So now I'm caching in multiple layers. Again, anything above that is uncached. So this is, sorry, yes. So this is actually a different one. Let's talk about IP storage. We talked about fiber channel, now let's talk about IP. Same thing. I have caching in every array. If I have an IP, iSCSI server, believe me, there's a cache there. Again, I have to worry about where things are happening. So some other controls, multipath protocols, storage IO controls, all happen roughly at the driver layer. Anything above that is uncached. So what's happening is internally, when I start going to iSCSI, I have to transport from iSCSI to the iSCSI driver stack. There's a storage driver stack where the VIO is, but then I have to go to the VM kernel switch, which actually gets me down into networking again. <coughs> Excuse me. Anybody use VFRC? VFRC basically moves the cache into the hypervisor. So effectively, I'm using a local SSD as the caching layer for everything. So when I do a, a read, it goes first there and says, do you exist? If I am, I'm cached automatically and I read back. If not, it goes through the same path to figure out and get all the data you, you need. So whatever's cached is cached. But the VFRC is a way to do a read cache with inside of the hypervisor using local SSD. How many of you guys use vSAN? Anybody? vSAN? Well, vSAN has a built-in cache as well. That's what the local SSD for vSAN is for, is to cache reads and writes. So again, I have to go there. And then anything above it is cached. Anything below is not, or could be, depending on the hardware you're using. So you can actually tie VFRC and vSAN together if you have enough local SSD, if you want to, and get more caching. Here's the thing about caching. It all stacks. The more caching you have, the faster things are, and you can stack all your caches. 
I can't stack encryption, but I can stack caching. Multiple layers, multiple everything. It's only uncached if it's actually not in the vSAN cache using this approach. I don't know anybody does this, but I just figure I'd document this for posterity in case. So virtual disk encryption, we went through caching, many layers all there. Virtual disk encryption is very different. This again is your normal usage unencrypted for remote store disk and local disk. I can encrypt at the disk layer, right? Um, SSEs, but anything above that is unencrypted. So anything going through the hardware, through a switch, through anything is unencrypted. Generally, this is great for what purpose? I got to throw away a key and I want to, don't care about the disk. I can encrypt in the switch. Yes, there are encrypting switch type capabilities. You can actually plug into your storage array or your, your iSCSI network an encrypting unit that will literally, you pass through encryption. It acts as a switch and does encryption at the array. Everything below that's encrypted. Everything above that's unencrypted. I can encrypt at the HBA. Yes, every fiber channel HBA has an encryption chip on it. No one uses it, but it exists. Every iSCSI um, offload card has an encryption chip on it. No one uses it, but it exists. And they don't use it because they fear the performance of doing the encryption, which actually these days doesn't exist. It's not a problem. So I can encrypt in the hypervisor. This is in VM encryption. What I'm doing is I'm doing the encryption actually in the VM, but the key is in memory. Anything below the VM is encrypted. Everything in the VM is not. Now, there are tricks to say, hey, I can put a small key there and for a small time and decrypt and encrypt automatically anytime I want, but the keys are always in memory. That's a weakness. Or I can use Intel SGX, which by the way, this is not implemented in server class CPUs today. And this is actually using a trusted execution environment where all the encryption happens inside of the CPU. So data would be passed in, the key would be in CPU, and the CPU itself would be doing the encryption. Again, anything above is decrypted, everything below is encrypted. I can use a virtual TPM to see, hey, hold my encryption keys for a VM. This is how it would look for in Hyper-V. And this is how it looks like in vSphere. The virtual TPM is actually backed by VM encryption. So what's happening is, is when I put a, use my virtual TPM, it's a chunk of the metadata files that are written for every VM. It's encrypted in there using VM encryption. It doesn't encrypt all the file, just the chunks it needs. So the NVRAM and certain sections of the VMX file and anything, I think those are the only ones, but there may be one or two others. When you do this, I need a KMIP using KMS, speaking KMIP, to hold those keys for me so that the underlying layers can be decrypted. The key cache is where I stick those keys. This is very complicated, so let me back this out. So unencrypted in key and memory in the VM, the read, I can read the key out of the virtual TPM. So if I even have a virtual TPM, I put the key in it, right? Well, I have to read it out to do the decryption. But the key's safe, because it's outside of somebody's control. It gets read in the memory. Someone changes it, you just read it again. 
no one can write to it again unless you have the right permissions, right? Can those permissions be gained? Yes. But it's backed by all the layers of VM encryption, which happens inside the, let me see if I can do this, here we go. Nope. The IO filter that's in place for the storage does the actual encryption of the bits that need to be encrypted when they get written to the disk. It's NVRAM swap file, parts of the VMX file, and a few other things as I was documenting. The key that gets written is one that the VM just can't see for the virtual TPM. But I can store in a virtual TPM other keys. So the VM itself can't decrypt what the virtual TPM has. That's actually a nice feature. This is VM encryption itself. It goes through the VIO, the IO filter, and the driver. Everything at the IO filter, below the IO filter, is encrypted. So not a little less complex, but what we're doing is, again, the KMAP, the KMS sticks the stuff in the key cache on a per host, per basis. That's why you need a KMS. You can't do this without one. It needs to be KMAP 1.1 or higher. There are plenty out there that are actually free and enterprise class. I suggest if you're going this route to look at that. But everything gets stuck into that key cache. That lasts through a reboot, but also it gets re-updated every time you reboot to make sure that you got the right keys out of the KMS. So the ultimate holder of the key is not the key cache, it's the KMS. You need multiples of them. So what happens is when I go through VIO, I then hit the IO filter, the IO filter gets the key cache, does the decryption, or the encryption of the bits so you can read and write. That's how it works. vSAN encryption is basically a little different. VM encryption is doing it at the IO filter. In other words, as data passes through the SCSI, the, the virtual SCSI adapter, it's going to encrypt somewhere in the filtering stage. vSAN itself is a driver. So what they're doing is they're using that same key cache and pulling it into the vSAN driver and doing the encryption and decryption so you get data at rest encryption. Again, everything above the vSAN driver is unencrypted. Everything below is encrypted. The advantage to both VM encryption and vSAN encryption is that the key for the encryption is never in the VM. VM can't see it. I, as an administrator, can't get to it. I, as an administrator of the VM, cannot dump memory and get to it. This is an important thing. That's always been a weakness with encryption inside of VMs. So that was that. Encryption, caching, a lot of them are very, very similar in, in concepts. Where and what we do on them is the important bit. So let's talk about services. We're going to look at CPU memory flows, vMotion, live migration, and yes, there is some I, this is, I, present, I presented this for all hypervisors, but it's really just vSphere. So vMotion, everybody knows how vMotion is great, right? Everybody's used it, I'm hoping. And do you know how it works? So the very first thing does is a vMotion spec is actually encrypted these days with an AES 256-bit key with a 64-bit nonce. And basically it says, okay, stun the original VM and instantiate a new one copy over data, right? So what it's going to do is the vMotion itself, in this case, is saying, hey, stun the VM, which means halt all processing, 
instantiate a new similar VM with the same spec on a new host. The next thing it does is starts transferring data. So this one's going to copy memory. It copies the used memory first and then the unused memory. Generally, unused doesn't mean it hasn't been touched. It's used pages. So copying the pages, not the actual, the whole, all of the memory. Just the in-use pages, or it could be parts of pages that are unused, but it's just pages. You're not copying byte, it's copying pages. Once I've done that, I've stuffed that all into the virtual memory of the VM. Then I go off and say, okay, I now need to copy the registers. Because once I copy the registers, I can tell the VM where to pick back up, because that's all in the registers. That's the current instruction pointer is what you really want. That, and you need every other register there too to make it work. Once I've done that, and by the way, if you are turning on VM encryption, vMotion is encrypted by default. You have to have VM encryption to get encrypted vMotion these days. That's 6.7 and 6.5, I think. And then I have to deregister the original VM because I don't want two of them. That would be bad. And then unstun the new VM and say, hey, I'm up here. And I'm now ready to run. How fast does this take? Less than a second? Sub-second? Yeah, it's fast. Because most of it's already on the other host. The disk is on there, so I have to do is copy memory, in-use memory pages. Not all the pages, just the in-use memory pages. So that's the basics of vMotion. Ballooning TPS and compression. So there's a memory services inside of vSphere that will do a per VM memory page type setup. Those VM services can do compression in memory. So what it's doing is taking more than one page and compressing it so it fits into less pages. Less pages it takes up, the less memory it actually uses. That means I can share this memory across more and more um, VMs. But remember, a page of memory, once it's assigned to a VM, stays with that VM. So when they compress, they're actually stuffing pages. But it has to be uncompressed at some point in time. So there's an uncompression, there's a page that you can uncompress into as well. So memory ballooning works very differently. The mem services detects the need for memory, more memory pages. Only free pages. So if I have a free page in one VM and not in another, it's basically going to say, hey, can I borrow that page? That's a page from your book. I need to borrow it. So what it does is says, okay, I'm going to mark that page as unusable by in the VM and then zero it completely. I mean, bitwise zero it and then allow the new VM to have access to it. Now that process gets reversed when the VM is done with it. So if you have an overcommitted memory, this is, could be one of the things that's happening. How many people use memory ballooning? few? Okay. I don't anymore, but I have more memory than I can use for the VMs I have at the moment. That's changed over many, many, many years. I started with using ballooning compression the works. Transparent page sharing is very, very different. So there's actually a transparent page sharing buffer that is basically set up per group. If I have a single VM and I say this can't share with anything, there's no buffer for it. 
if I have a group of salts that I use for a group of VMs, then all those VMs can do transparent page sharing. I have a group of buffers for them. And then I have one that's like, oh, all the hypervisor, I can do it that way. So mem services are basically only if I share the same key can the page table be shared. This is cool. Each page is then compared. It does a checksum. And then it does a bit by, if that checksum passes, it does, then does a bit by bit comparison. So the checksums used to just say, oh, you don't match, I don't care. But because all checksums have been broken, they do a bit by bit comparison to say, is this actually identical? If the page is identical, I can compress them and point, repoint everything to the one that exists. Only time it happens. In a large environment with VDI, this could be very, very useful. You also tend to want to turn it off when you have users that are in different security zones. Just saying. Fault tolerance. Anybody use fault tolerance? Good. A few of you. So fault tolerance is very much like a VM. If I, like a vMotion, kind of like a half vMotion is the way I always look at it. When I set it up, I snap the v, I stun the VM, the target VM, and I instantiate a shadow VM. Once I instantiate the shadow VM, I can then send events. Now, if I'm using one vCPU, it sends non-deterministic events, memory access. That's it. If I'm two to four vCPUs, it sends all instructions. That's why you need a 10 gig link. If you don't have a 10 gig link, multi-vCPU fault tolerance is going to be painful. And then I instantiate the shadow VM. And then the fault tolerance engine is going to start transferring CPU instructions based on the type you have. The shadow VM is just sitting there running in the background, doing everything you normally did. During a failure, it actually, when the failover happens, the, the source VM is dead. So it promotes the shadow VM to being the main VM. So it finishes the vMotion, so to speak. It does, the uns, it does the instantiation, the proper instantiation. Change block tracking and snapshots. Everybody uses this in some fashion or not. So what happens is when change block shopping happens, I have a disk sectors, all change blocks of the disk sectors are copied, are written. So if I'm changing a sector of a disk or a block on a disk, it's going to say, OK, I'm going to copy and make sure you know that I changed that block. So change block tracking is a journal of all that so that when I know what to copy into my backup or to repair, I have a list, which is kind of cool. Again, what's happening is, is you, when you do the snapshot, which is generally what this is used for, it instantiates a new virtual disk that is the current instance of it, and the main virtual disk is just not doing anything. But there's a CBT file that actually is being written to for the change block tracking as well as the virtual machine. Snapshot services work the same way, except that you're not actually using CBT unless you ask for it. It's going to stun the VM. And if it's encrypted, by the way, this won't work. It's going to create another disk. And it's going to repoint it to the new disk. 
That's all it does. So I have an instance, but the CBT file is also being used at this time, usually. You can tell it not to, but most people do. You can have multiple snapshots. And when I restore a snapshot, what I'm doing is I'm going to copy the revert is I'm going to copy the commit, I should say. I'm going to copy the first one to the next one to the next one, and eventually it's going to be one disk. So if I do a complete restore, I can do that. I can also get the memory. Memory is not going to be gotten. You can't snapshot memory if your VM is encrypted. It just won't work. Just don't even bother. But memory is really useful when you do snapshots if you want to do further analysis of a VM. You have a backup to do malware detection, other type of analysis you want, forensics, the works. So I actually then write the memory file, and some of the CPU bits get written as well, specifically registers at the end. When I do the commit, I stun the VM and repoint everything. I copy the data and then repoint to the, new, the old one. So now all those virtual disks I created, they had all the snapshots and it disappear. Now I can keep them if I wanted to. You just do the next previous one. This I like doing this. I like keeping my snapshots really clean. Snapshots used to add overhead. They don't really anymore, so something to think about. VMCI, so VIX. This was a big thing that brought up at Black Hat last year that VIX allows attacks. Actually, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> So the, what VIX does is allow the management layer to be able to talk directly to the VM through the VIX services. What you needed inside of it is the VIX spec, but it also requires a privilege inside of vCenter, requires a special setup, and has a limited result set. So you can actually get, do get many results out of it, but you can do a lot with you have the right permissions. Something to think about. It allows you to run in the VM. There's no network required, but it requires a login and actually requires VMware tools. So if you don't have VMware tools, this is impossible. VMCI is going, oh, so this is VIX communication uses a, some more on it. VM communication interface, we talked about that a little bit. Basically, it allows a shortcut through to a driver that has nothing to do with networking or storage. They use it for endpoint security a lot, and it's just a glue layer, but VMCI used to allow VM to VM communication. It doesn't anymore. VMCI is used specifically for endpoint security only. So it's been very, very much locked down. This is the NSX guest introspection I've already went over. Serial ports, there's a number of different serial ports. You've got named pipes. They actually allow VMs to talk to each other through named pipes. You have a serial service, which actually can write to disk. You have serial services that can write to a port concentrator upstream of you through the network. All these work. There's also pass-through devices with SROV. I can actually take a physical NIC, for example, and map that directly into the VM. And we are almost out of time. And then you've got plumbing and pinning, and that's the end. Thank you very much. And I'm open afterwards for questions.